What does it mean, Messiah Matters? It means apart from him, we can do nothing. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeshua is the only way of salvation. He is everything. We have to have the Tanakh to know the Messiah. But we have to have the Messiah to know the Tanakh. Without Messiah, we have nothing. Basically, it's all about the Messiah. It's Wednesday, June 6, 2018. This is Messiah Matters number 221. Down by two, but I still believe Vegas can win. My name is Caleb Hag, and with me, a man who has perhaps has more, uh, perhaps prepared more. Sorry for this show than any other. Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going? Going well. Tongue twisted at that, eh? Why do you think I prepared more now? <clears throat> because you actually sent me notes. <laughs> I think that's the first time you've ever sent me notes in the history of the show. Oh, that could be. Anyway, if you, I mean, for for those who don't know, um, we have posted our notes uh, in two places. One uh, in our show notes. So if you receive our show notes, um, then you should have them. And if you don't receive our show notes, then you should sign up. And you can. I actually posted a link on our uh, Facebook page to sign up for show notes. Um, and it's too late now. But you should. This is exactly why you should sign up for show notes, and also, uh, it's. I did post them in our Messiah Matters more for our uh, monthly supporters. Uh, so if you're a monthly supporter of, um, or just a support, if you're an associate producer, executive producer, or a monthly supporter of Messiah Matters, you can access the Messiah Matters more page, and you can find Rob's notes in a PDF download there as well. Okay, let's get into some things. First of all, um, I want everyone to be a good part of this conversation, and you can do that by giving us a call. Call our comment line. Oh, wrong one. I'm sorry. Here, let me uh, let me take that down. I apologize. Call our comment line. Uh, right there. That's it. <laughs> 253-465-3205. You can also shoot us an email, chag at torresource.com. It's chag at torresource.com. And uh, let's just get it all out of the way in the very beginning. Uh, Messiah Matters is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Go to TorahResource and find all sorts of great stuff. Like, and this is this I did not reference in the show notes, but uh, this is such a great resource, and this is the second volume. This is my dad's commentary on the book of Hebrews. And this is, honestly, this is a, uh, a go-to. Anytime somebody asks me something about Hebrews, basically my answer, if you write me an email and ask me a question about Hebrews, I just go here, okay? So if you, you know, save an email, uh, buy some paper, and uh, there you go. And, I, hey, if I may, Caleb. Yes. I noticed a, a little bird, birdie told me that uh, your father's commentary on the Yohanin epistles That's are coming right. out. Very handsome looking um, set there. When when's the expected date for that? 
Um, so we just got proof back today. Uh, and they said everything looks okay on our end. Now you need to proof the book. And so we're going to probably purchase one, and that'll take them you know, anywhere up to a week and a half to get it back. We will look at it, make any appropriate changes that we feel necessary, then we will order. Um, and that's actually, once we approve it, is when it'll go on sale, uh, pre-order on sale. And you'll be able to uh, pre-purchase it at a discount then, I believe. I believe, I think. And then uh, they'll come about two weeks after that. So you're looking at the beginning of July at this point. Okay, but hang on. Before we go any further on that, we should also say that Torah Resource, or Torah Resource, that Messiah Matters, rather. This show, Messiah Matters, is brought to you by our associate and executive producers. We are very excited that uh, people have uh, decided to support us in buying uh, associate and executive producerships. We're going to roll over in two weeks. Which means that uh, we will be looking for summer associate and executive producers. We are creating new logos for our uh, producers uh, pretty much as we speak. And they should be up this coming week. Um, Yeah, so keep your eyes open for that. And if you've thought about becoming an associate or an executive producer. So those are are unique. Every quarter. Those are one of a kind, um, like the the t-shirts and the mugs. Right. Uh, No one has those but, but you. The, right. the executive and associate producers. That's um, right. So those, that's, those are yeah. really cool. And then also, of course, our monthly supporters. Uh, you can become a monthly supporter for as little as $5 a month. You can do that by going to torresource.com, hovering over TR Radio, and then clicking on Messiah Matters. And right over on the right-hand side, you'll see right there, it says that you can become a supporter for, for, for as little as $5 a month. And one of the great perks of becoming a supporter for $5 a month is that you get access to Messiah Matters More, which is a page that uh, only our supporters get to see. And we try to put up extra content like Rob's notes uh, that you can download and view and, and extra little video clips and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, okay, now that all of that is out of the way, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure that that probably gets old to all the people who, uh, that, who are with us every single week in the chat room and whatnot. Um, but you know, that's part of it. Um, so I should also ask, I've, I've been trying to fix, uh, Rob's flicker problem on his video and I'm trying to isolate it with the people who, uh, sold us the software that we use to produce this show. And it so, actually turns out that I'm just a computer program. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> and he found a glitch, right? No, uh, actually, so we are trying to fix it, but, uh, it looks like it has yet to be fixed, but, uh, all of our audio has been rerouted through different different programs. So let me know if, uh, uh, let me know if his audio is too low or too high or vice versa. Okay. And you're going to have to deal with the flickering for at least one more week. I don't know what else to do. I'm, I'm at a loss here. I think I'm going to have to buy a new graphics card, which, uh, or up my graphics card, I should say. Okay. Let's get into it. Um, you know, this week, so I've decided this, you know, my recommendations for books, uh, this is going to be my last one, I think. And the reason why, the reason why is because, um, it's been so long since I've read so many, you know, uh, I read a book a long time ago on, uh, John the Baptist, fantastic book, but it's been so long. I can't really talk about it, you know? Okay. Hey, off the chat room, buddy. Okay. I see it. I, I, you're lost. <laughs> I'm trying to, I got to be honest. I was trying to find a coffee emoji to remind you. This is why you're not allowed in the chat room. Turn it okay. off. Okay, it's gone. Turn it Sorry, off. Sorry, guys. Okay. I, I so, love you all. <laughs> yeah. 
Very I'm drinking water right now. I just said. <laughs> okay, so I also read a great book a while ago called "Did G- Jesus Teach Salvation by Works?" Excellent book. Um, now, whether the thing is, I don't even remember what I thought what of the, the answer is. <laughs> no, I, I remember that. I I don't remember the like my final thoughts on those books. So it's not even worth trying to like promote them or say whether or not it's a buy, borrow, or bag. So this this week it's a little different because I think that the ultimate thing that everyone needs in their library is a really really good computer Bible program, and I think that uh, you could get free ones like I know eSword is a a good buy, and we've said this many many times, but you know what? It's uh, I think that I I've been blessed by the Lord to uh, be given by my company a robust uh, Bible software. And it is a blessing. I mean, it really is. And, and when I when I scroll through all the things that uh, the company has given me, uh, it's uh, it's overwhelming. Um, and not only that, but they've given me the uh, premier software for um, for well, pretty much the premier, premier software. I don't even know how to use it as well as I should. Um, so I use Accordance Bible Software, which I I can't say I, I love enough. It's uh, it's fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, BibleWorks is going out of business. Um, and, uh, th- but you know what, to be honest with you, the reason Bible works is going out of business, it's not really surprising to me because they're not, you know, why would you go with Bible? You know, why would you pay for the upgrades in Bible works when you can have things like Logos and Accordance, you know, Logos and Accordance are the standard now. Um, Logos certainly has a, a larger library, so there's perks to having Logos and don't let my boss hear me say that. But that if when you think about it, the software is being designed and updated and developed to tailor the demands that the scholars are asking for. Right. If you look over the last twenty years, I know Tim Higgs been involved uh, for I don't know how far back with um, Accordance, and every up upgrade is to say, hey. You know, a scholar coming along says, I, I need it to be able to do X, Y, and Z. I need it to be able to do this. Right. And so the programmers get together and they go, we can we can do that. And then they go through a little trial and error period and they get it. And now now you have a tool that's even more specialized. And Check so, this. It, it, now, I know, that, I know that I just got on you for looking in the chat room. But in the chat room, uh, <laughs> people are now saying uh, things like team accordance, hashtag team accordance, uh, uh, accordance, uh, logos accordance for life. Uh, team logos, these kind of things. So I mean, it, but it shows that people are very, you know, adamant about what they're what they're using. I'm a, I'm a accordance software user predominantly because it was provided for me, which was a huge blessing. But uh, I'll give you an example. You know, Rob and I have been uh, uh, preparing for this show, and we and many of you know our process. We get together early, about seven thirty, eight o'clock on on Monday morning, and we begin to. Um, talk about things that we've looked at personally from the week before Thursday, Friday, Saturday, these kind of things. And then we start to p- formulate, okay, what are we going to talk about? What emails have come through? What, uh, what phone conversations have come through? So we, we grabbed a uh, phone call that uh, came in on our comment line and we kind of ran with it and both of us did. And um, even this morning, one of the first, you know, I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at, well, this is actually a different comment, but somebody asks about and maybe we should jump right into this after we're done with this, but somebody asked about uh, Hebrews and the word new in Hebrews 
Um, and we'll get into this in a few seconds. But one of the nice things was, is that I then, you know, I just thought, well, I want to look this word up and see what's used specifically in Jeremiah 31, 31, when he says, I'm, you know, uh, God will make a new covenant. So I, you know, I go right over to uh, Accordance, and uh, I'm blessed enough to have multiple copies of the LXX from different uh, different people. So I pull open three different uh, uh, versions of the LXX, and sure enough, there it is. It's uh, you know I have the ability to look at the Greek from three different you know, and they're all they're all uniform in, in that passage, and um, at least the ones I looked at. Uh, but it's you know I didn't have to do a Google search. <laughs> You know, I have the ability to, uh, to to do all these things just right at my fingertips. Anyway, all of this to say, I think that, um, you know, if my company had not blessed me with uh, Accordance Bible Software, I think that what I would have done is every single birthday, every single Hanukkah, every single Passover, whenever you get presents for Father's Day, whatever, I would be asking for money towards new modules for, uh, a, for a Bible software, whether it's Logos, whether it's, um, you know, tr- I don't know, there's, there's others out there, but uh, Accordance, Logos, whatever. I would be asking for money for those and I'd be saving up and trying to buy new packages. And the reason why is because I think that it is vitally important for, to be able to, I mean, we have this technology now. Just think of what would have been done if Tyndale and Wycliffe and Wycliffe and yeah, uh, right. Luther and all these guys would have had Accordance Bible Software or Logos. It would have been unbelievable. It would have been, you know, the, these guys wouldn't know what to do with themselves. And uh, yet we have it and believers for some reason don't think that, you know, it's like, oh, I'll just have a, you know, I'll have my ESV and we'll be fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, uh, please read your Bible, read your ESV, read your NASB. Um, you know, these things are great. And we've had some really good comments. This is in your show notes as well. Really good comments on what Bible version do you use and why? Um, I posted that on our Facebook page the other day. Um, so go to our Facebook page or click the link in your show notes and let us know what you think about Bible translations. Okay. Let's get into the, uh, to the comment. Now I really chopped this down and my apologies to our longtime friend and listener, Erna, uh, Erna called and she left a, a very, very lovely message uh, on our comment line, and we appreciate it every time she does. Um, so I snipped this down and I, well, I had some audio problems anyway. So uh, she's talking about the five questions that we talked about last week in show 220 um, from a ministry and a person uh, at the ministry who was talking about uh, these five different points. And the point, one of the points that he was making is that uh, they believe in a new covenant, not a renewed covenant. And he cited Hebrews. He cited Hebrews several times. Excuse me. Um, And uh, so she's responding to that. And she's talking about this word new covenant in the book of Hebrews. Let's listen to what she has to say. One of them referred to um, Hebrews and uh, a new covenant, etc. I remember when way back when we first came into the Messianic Hebrew roots thing, um, teachers were telling us that um, the Greek there was renew. Okay, so she goes on, I'm, I'm going to summarize now. She goes on to say that her husband, you know, he, he I believe he's taken Greek before, uh, but it's been so long that he can't remember, you know, exactly uh, what the passage is here. Now, I actually have, uh, I actually did some work on this this morning. 
So I have some notes on this. Um, and I'm sure that uh, you want me to go first. Or you want to go first. You go first. Okay. Uh, New Covenant is found in Hebrews 8, 8, 9, 15, and 12, 24. Now, a lot of people think that it's at the end of 8. It's not. That is, uh, and we've talked about this numerous times, that is a present from your translators. If it's in their Tree of Life version, actually, does not supply that for you, which is nice because you actually kind of get an idea of what the flow sounds like when you're reading it. In 8, 8, and 9, 15, the Greek is diathekes, Kainos, uh, and the same phrase is used in the Septuagint of Jeremiah 31, 31 for new covenant. The word kainos means new, and the suggestion that it means renewed has no basis that I can find. Now, maybe maybe uh, Rob will tell us differently, but I have uh, I have not been able to find. I uh, looked in my accordance software, and um, I looked in three different lexicons, and none of them uh, said that this word could mean renew. They all said it meant new or something that has only been around for a long time or not used. Greek, uh, yeah, let's see here. In Hebrews 12, 24, however, the Greek is diathekes uh, neos. 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 In it. Anyway. Um, and so what I did was I went specifically to my commentary. father's commentary on the book of volume Hebrews, two. volume 2, and I looked up this verse which is 1224, and this is what he had to say. Actually, check this out, folks. I think, if I can do this right, I think I have this uh, up for the screen. Let's check it out. Ha <laughs> ha! Okay, and Yeshua, the mediator of a new covenant. Interestingly, the Greek word translated new, in this case, theos, uh, I'm sorry, neos, is different than what our author used in 8, 8 through 12, and 9, 15 when he speaks of the new covenant. In these former passages, he uses the Greek word kainos. kainos. Is there a difference uh, in general usage and meaning between these uh, two terms? Older lexicographers and teachers insisted that the two uh, bore distinctions, neos bearing the sense of recent, since the word is often used in the Septuagint of young men, while kainos meaning new in the sense of never before existing. More modern commentators, however, have shown that the words are roughly equivalent. Bruce suggests that the, new, that the use of the different word here is for the sake of rhythm, since the author has begun a kind of poetic list, which he wanted, to, uh, he, which he wanted read in a rhythmic way. Trench, however, appears to give ample evidence to show that though the two words are clearly similar in meaning, their shade of difference is consistent. If this is the case, then the use of neos here rather than kainos might suggest that our author intends to emphasize the new covenant as recently established by the sacrifice and heavenly media, uh, media, mediatorial work of Yeshua. In other words, while the new covenant is yet to be fulfilled in its entirety, awaiting the time when all Israel will be saved, Romans 11.26, all that is necessary for its full com uh, completion has been accomplished. Um, so I found that to be interesting and helpful. Uh, would you like to add anything to that? Sure. Yeah, uh, I understand the uh, the kind of earnest point because I think I went through a similar kind of thing. Well, oh, it's not new; it's renewed, and there was a lot of stuff said about it, and I didn't have any skills at the time to know, you know, right. does it matter which one I call it? And as I, where I am today, you know, fast forward today, I understand the use of renewed, not, 
kind of in a paraphrastic way. I don't mind using it. I wouldn't use it to translate when it's specifically new. Like uh, when he said that when he like at the end of uh, Hebrews eight, for example. But generally, for me, the concept of renewed parallels the idea of redeemed. That is the the new covenant, and granted, it's the word, you know, chadasha, from chadash, which is the word for new. Um, that there's a continuity. There's there is it, there's a um, the the Torah hasn't been. Now this is where you get into the issue of Torah or not. People, I don't know that people. Uh, let's say larger Christian world that doesn't see Torah as having any applicability to their life probably doesn't care about this discussion. Right. Yeah. I, I wouldn't imagine. Uh, so it's people who are trying to understand and wrestling with the continuity issue versus discontinuity when it comes to Brit Hadashah. And the idea of this is this Brit, this covenant is not like the one I made with their fathers. Okay. Which they broke. Right. So we, we go through this. Well, so the Torah goes from the outside to the inside. Right. And then there's a and uh, so there's a continuity in Torah, but there's a uh, a Brit, a new Brit, a Brit Chadasha. And so my understanding of the use of renew was just to try to hint at that larger um, uh, dynamic, rather than a literal translation. However, that being said, there are uh, Caleb, you're right that kainos is our word for new. There is actually a word, and I just pulled them up here, and I, this is, uh, there's not too many verses here, but um, the book of Hebrews itself, 6.6, 6, uses the word anakaino, the verb, to renew. And this is where, the you know, if one has fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. So the idea of repentance is a uh, type of renewal. We also see it in Romans 12 2, the renewing of your mind. This is ana kaino kainos. So it's kainos with this ana, which is which is a preposition added to it. So I think renew is a good translation for that. In Titus 3 5, um, he saved us not on the basis of, of works which we have done, and uh, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit. So renewing, that's a, this is a good translation in that instance. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Let, let me just, there's two more here. And then, what, is, uh, wait, is it still the same? I'm, uh, hang on, the clarification. Anak- it's, on, it's always anakinos, whether okay. it's in a verb form or a noun, the so, core stem, anakinos. So it's kinos, it's that same word you were talking about. But, but it, it has With I, the, with ana, the ana yeah. preposition. Yeah. Right. And so it's a compound comes in a verbal form and a noun form. Um, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed. Himera kai himera. So day, day and day, day by day. So that this, the idea of renewing is, a, is this constant. Um, and then again, Colossians 3.10 is the last one. Uh, we have put on the new, uh, the new person who is being renewed. So here we have naos used and anakinos together uh, in Colossians 3.10. So I like both. <laughs> I, I don't want, if someone says renewed covenant, 
um, and they say new covenant, I'm not going to quibble. Now, if we start talking about the details, and maybe this is worth doing a, a more in-depth study, I'm, I'm just responding to the, to the great question that we just got. Um, but I, I'm okay with both, and I understand the strengths of both, and I think there are some limits. Ultimately, we j- we got to go back to Scripture. But uh, for what it's worth, uh, just for Erna, those verses that uh, to look at the verb specifically accurately translated as renew, I'll just relist those. Hebrews 6.6, 6, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Colossians 3.10, Romans 12.2, and Titus 3.5. So there's just, what, five, five verses there where this is used in the apostolic writings. Great question. Excellent. Uh, there's a whole, whole paper we could do on that probably. Okay, so uh, this show is actually a, a perfect show to highlight how we use and utilize the comments and the uh, the emails that come in on our comment line. Um, once again, I'll give it to you again. It's 253-465-3205, 253-465-3205, and also an email, which is chegg at torresource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at torresource.com. And this uh, next one is an email from Jessica. And she writes this, and my apologies to Jessica, this email came in probably a month and a half, maybe two months ago. We usually try to uh, respond to things that come in within at least two weeks of when they come in, but uh, it all kind of depends on, you know, what's going on and and the questions that, anyway. Um, So, and this is only one third of her email. She wrote a significant amount of questions. They were all good questions, and hopefully we'll be able to get to all of them throughout different shows. But for now, we're just going to... touch on this very first part. She says this, by the way, and apologies to people who uh, can see me. My allergies are just kicking off hard today. So I got a runny nose and a itchy eyes and sneezing all over the place. Anyway. Okay. Uh, this is what Jessica says. She says, I was wondering if you could speak to the topic of worship for one of your shows. Various angles may include raw linguistics versus beliefs behind the linguistics. For instance, she says, number one, if a worship song written by a Mormon, yes, a Mormon, is generic enough, nothing explicitly heretical, to be sung by an Orthodox believer in Yeshua, should that song be sung or avoided? It's a good question. And then she follows it up with this question. If a Mormon or JW, Jehovah's Witness, or Jew sings to yod heh that is Yeshua, does God receive the worship or does their theology, beliefs behind their words in effect actually make their worship to a false god in spite of the language used? This is also a good question. So let's take it one at a time. You want to go first or you want me to? All right, go ahead. No, I want to hear what you say. <laughs> so do I. I'm, I'm interested too, what I'm going to say here. Um, Worship's a big, it's a big topic. Worship's a big topic and it's and it's very and, different. And, and we're, just ta- we're just talking about one very small aspect of worship, which is singing, right? And the songs that we sing. Where there's lyrics, right? Yeah. Right, where there's, where there's lyrics, or, exactly. Or content. Yeah, um, I mean, that brings right into the, like, is it okay if we're, let's say we're, you know, on Shabbat, we usually do a, I don't know, five or six worship songs. Most of them are scripture. Like, it's just scripture. Sometimes even, like, Hebrew, you know. Um but sometimes not exactly scripture, but but echoing like paraphrases of scripture. Um, so some could argue, no, you should you should all 
be right from the Psalms, or should it should all be Scripture? Like, you know what? Here's the thing: is that because that would avoid that question, then, right? If someone, if your community said, "No, we only we only sing script things that are exactly Scripture," then you would eliminate the idea of whether someone composed it, who composed it, right? right? Because it's all canonical. Here's the thing that I've realized about worship music, and this is one reason that I don't like talking about it too much. Um, you know, people will leave congregations over worship music. People will start congregations over worship music. Um, this is a huge topic that people are very passionate about. Some people say hymns only, right? Um, and some people say, no, only modern like music. Or, yeah, exactly. Um, only scripture, only, you know, there's there's a slew of different uh, beliefs on this. I think it comes down to each personal person and your own conviction and each community and their conviction. You know, if I walk into a place that's only singing hymns, I'm not going to try to get them to uh, integrate a hill song, uh, worship song into their service. It's not going to fit and it's not what they're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, vice versa. Um I, and when it comes down to the words that, you know, the specific words, I think that we need to understand what we're singing. And I think we need to, uh, you know, I think what, if you don't know what you're singing, then that's a problem, especially if it's in worship to God. Um, now, can a, a Jewish person write uh, a song that a Christian can sing to God? I think absolutely. Um, but I, I mean, once again, I think this comes down to there's no this isn't I don't think this is sp uh, specifically laid out in in scripture. And so this is kind of ask your local rabbi what kind of one of those questions. The second one, on the other hand, is a little bit different. If a Mormon or a JW or a Jew sings to Yode Vave slash Yeshua, does God receive the worship or does their theology beliefs behind their words, in effect, actually make their worship to be to a false God in spite of the language used? Um, I think that this is one of those I don't have to decide, and I'm thankful for that. That's up to God. I think that uh, you know I think that there are people that are in the Mormon Church, and I've done a lot of Mormon outreach in my life. Um, I think there are poor people in the Mormon Church who truly love God and are actually saved. Now, one of the reasons why is because a lot of people in the Mormon Church don't realize what the Mormon Church actually believes or teaches. They they go to their ward on on Sundays. Uh, you know they hear some things from the Bible. They hear some things from the Book of Mormon. It all sounds above board. There's no weird doctrine of you know aliens or you know anything like that. Uh, you know Yeshua used to be a god who or a guy walking around on a different earth who was given a you know a, a, a world or anything like that. So they hear the gospel message and they they just you know they believe and there you go. I think the same thing can happen uh, for the JWs. And of course, we've seen plenty of Jews uh, come to faith in the Messiah. Now, all of that said, I think it needs to be clarified that if a person truly knows the theology of Mormonism and believes that Yeshua was one is nothing more than a man, um, or yeah, if their if their place if their posture or their um, the their stance before the Creator is, I am. Uh, third degree Mormon or whatever, you know, and therefore la la la. I, I just yeah, bring, degree bring go to Luke 18, for example, right? What about Yeshua tells about the two men that go into the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. The Pharisee's praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax. I'm not like this person over here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. 
And the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay, the question is, who had the, who had the accurate self-assessment? Is who it, was, is it which, wait, hang on. Which is person it, was, which person Do you think was, that's self-assessment? Or do you think that's assessment of... Accurate self-assessment. The, the of, sinner knew he was a sinner. Okay, fair enough. But righteousness before, in other words, righteousness before the holy God. In other words, yeah. I, I... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, the I, Pharisee. So if you're, if that's the way to think of it, the way, right. I, in my view, the answer to the question is this situation. Because someone could say, oh, he's a, he's a Pharisee. He's got, he knows the Torah. He keeps the commandments outward. You no, know, it just looks like if anybody's a religious guy who's going to be blessed, it's probably going to be this guy. And but Yeshua says, no, the one who's justified is is not the one that the outward person would think. I well, I think that ultimately what we have to realize is that I don't think that the Father hears prayers of people who don't pray through Yeshua, and that doesn't mean that you just say Yeshua's name. That means that you believe in truth, in the Messiah Yeshua. Well, which means you have had genuine repentance. Exactly. If and you, it, it, it says, if, if whoever doesn't hear my Torah, his prayer's an abomination. Is that in the Proverbs, I think? That's a paraphrase. That's Rob's paraphrase. But, but the, <laughs> I, point, the, 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 the point is, is that, you know, God hears the prayer of someone who says, Lord, help me. Yeah. Through, through Yeshua. And they might not even know exactly what that means. But uh, it's that's when the uh, when the Almighty hears. Now I I'm not the person who says whether or not a person's heart is right or what if they n- know enough about Yeshua or believe enough about Yeshua or any of that stuff or if they believe correctly in Yeshua or any that's not for me or Rob or anyone else to say. That's for God to say. Thank heavens, right? There it is. Proverbs twenty-eight nine. That's the one. Proverbs twenty-eight verse nine. I knew it was in the Proverbs. Um, but it is the one who who turns his ear away from hearing the Torah, uh, his tefillah, his prayer is an abomination. So that means you're approaching God out of your own imagination of who God is. Your own, you've invented a picture of God, and you're like hanging it in heaven, right. imagining that that's who He is. Right. And so. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, but back, but technically, I think her word was worship that, that Jessica used. So, right, 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 um, right. Prayer, we would have to, you know, we could quibble about that. The person who's crying out, let's say, because of a catastrophe or some sort of uh, traumatic event or some other crisis, um, they might not be. We might not call that worship. You know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Derek, I, here's what I. Derek, here's what I, Derek in the chat room says. Quote, pour out the fire, more fire, end quote, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. You sure? Do you <laughs> you want fire poured out on us from the living God? That's a good point. Do you, I mean, be be careful what you ask for. God is a consuming fire. You really want to go curl exactly. up in the lap of a consuming fire? Us, exactly. And we uh, Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah chapter 6 is so critical because here's Isaiah. We think he's like this like this Pharisee, right? I mean, outwardly, like, man, he's a prophet of God. He knows right. the Torah. He's he he's a, a, a Navi. He speaks, thus saith the Lord. He has access to uh, the holy space in Jerusalem and all this. And he has this vision. And what is what happens to him? He's like, I'm a dead man. 
woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I mean, it was the, the contrast between right. God's holiness and any con- self-conception Isaiah had, just all he could say is it, woe is me. Right. And okay. that, that is uh, the foundation of, of true worship. Okay. Um, I want to move on because I think that... Uh, good questions. Wow. Yeah, this good is, questions. This is already show almost. I know, right? <laughs> well, we're done for the... No, I'm playing. Um, okay. So I'll just bring these up again. I'm going to do this every segment now. 253-465-3205. Seahagatorresource.com. Okay. I'm so tempted to open the chat room again Don't do and it. start reading it. Don't do it. Because I know that there's good stuff. We got on. we got a, Sorry, one of the guys. best showings we've had in, in weeks, though. People missed us on, on Wednesday last week, apparently. Got 37 people in the chat room right now. That's, that's welcome, everybody. Yeah, welcome. All right. Um, Lord let's bless get, you all. Let's go on to a main topic. Now, um, this from our regular listener, Andrew. Andrew, thank you for this. This is a, you know, we've actually done a show on this before. We have. I will admit that um, I have read more about uh, the Septuagint since then. And uh, I know that Rob has prepared a, a significant amount for this, so we're going to try to let him have most of the time so here. So do they get the whole two pages? Did you share the... Yeah, I just put it up okay. exactly as you sent it to me. Oh, awesome. So okay. if you are... Um, if you're uh, part... Uh, if you receive our show notes and you got it, it's in the download links underneath uh, Rob's notes. And if you didn't get those, but you're a supporter, go to the Messiah Matters More page, which can be found on the right-hand side of the Messiah Matters page. Sorry, I know this is a long way to go. Just bookmark it once you get there. Anyway, um, and it's in the articles section of the Messiah Matters More. Um, yeah, and this is what Andrew says. I don't know if you guys have done a show on this before, but um, basically I'm curious about what you think about the opinion that a lot of people put, put out there. Some even ironically say they're Torah observant, where they say the Masoretic text is a corrupt text, uh, the Jewish trans, well, not translators, but scribes, um, put anti-Messiah bias in it, and they they say the Septuagint is the one that you need to use. Um, what do you think about this? Like, I mean, at least with Kirei Kativ, you know, you you understand that the the way it's written, and it's always obvious the way it's written is the way to go. And I think Rob did a paper on that already, and. Um, and the Dead Sea Scrolls text, you know, it's in it's in Hebrew primarily. The, those manuscripts, uh, oftentimes, it's closer to the Septuagint reading, though, which which really makes me curious what's going on there. Uh, and I mean, even if the Masoretic text is a somewhat corrupted text, um, I mean, there's so much to learn from it, and it is in the original language, which is obviously valuable. Okay. Before we dive into this, uh, there's a lot of terms that were used in this message that someone who's new or someone who's just kind of coming into the, to more scholarly things, they're going to be very confused. So let's just real quick, I'm going to give a brief overview of, of the terms that you're going to hear. And uh, if you're not familiar with them, jot them down so you can continue to reference what, what in the world we're talking about. First of all, the Septuagint uh, means 70, and this comes from a legend of the, uh, of the Greek scriptures. We'll talk a little bit about the history here in a second. Um, the, there's a legend, whether or not it's true or not, it's, who knows, um, and the legend is, is mixed between different writers, uh, even pre-first uh, century. Basically, what is said is that Ptolemy um, had, was it Ptolemy? Yeah, Ptolemy, um, King the second. I think it was Ptolemy, King Ptolemy the second. Second, right? He commissioned uh, seventy Jewish scribes 
to come who also spoke Greek. And he was building up the Library of Alexandria. So the famous right. Library of Alexandria, the idea was to have world literature, like translations from all the different nations and all their best stuff. Right. And so Ptolemy, uh, he, he contracts these 70 people. He brings them. One of the legends sa- says that uh, they were put in 70 separate rooms and weren't allowed to talk to each other. Technically, it's 72. So, right. It's supposed to be tw- uh, from each tribe. There's like a... I think in the letter of Aristides, but they just call it the 70 because it's easier. In, in another legend, uh, they were able to talk to each other and there was no problem. They went from room to room and, and checked their notes, um, so on and so forth. And so this actually becomes uh, quite a large uh, point for the Christian apologists in the second century, like Justin Martyr. Anyway, um, so th- this Greek translation um, actually didn't become a codex, didn't become the Septuagint until Christianity came around. Before that, it was just various Greek translations of various scrolls. So you had a scroll of, you know, Isaiah in Greek. You had a scroll of, uh, you know, Deuteronomy in Greek. It, w- it wasn't until the Christians came around that they actually put it into a codex. That's like a book form. And the codex uh, is essentially a Christian invention, and they are the ones who m- kind of put the canon together uh, as, a, as the Septuagint, and this is where you get the Septuagint from. And a lot of the times, you'll see the Septuagint abbreviated with the uh, Roman numerals of 70, which is LXX. Okay, the Masoretic text. Now we're going to move on. So that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Masoretic text is a the Masoretes were the scribes who uh, who who copied and uh, made the Hebrew scrolls. The Masoretes, they tended to put in notes in margins and whatnot saying, um, there's a mistake here. We know it's a mistake, but we never change the text. They'll say things like that. Or it says this, but... They never, our- they'll never call something a mistake. Right. Right. Thank you. Okay. That, Fair enough. <laughs> they'll just say, read it different. They'll yeah. just say... Read it differently. Maybe a letter, letter. They'll say, don't change it. That's for sure. That you don't change it, but you might read it slightly differently than what's and what's this there. is uh, this and then we also have this is what's called Kativ. um this actually gets very very technical uh, we'll talk about this a little bit because uh, my father did a paper on Genesis 1822 uh, uh, on the Tikkun um there's uh, what six or seven places my I'm I'm rusty on this there's six or seven places where the um where the Masoretes actually did say that they changed the text. Um, and actually, my father's paper, he argues that they actually didn't change the text. They just well, said... Well, there's eight... There, traditionally, there's 18 tikkune sofrim, which means yeah. uh, rep- repairs of the scribes. 18. I was off by 10. 18. Good gracious. Um, and the, anyway... And the, and the Genesis passage that he wrote about is one of those 18. Right. And but they each have their own history. They're not... Um, so anyway... Yeah, it, that, that paper's available on, on our website. And it's in, and a link is in your show notes. Actually, oh, I, 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 uh, I, uh, when I went through my father's uh, Masoretic uh, class, uh, Masora class, we had to actually go through and mark all of the Tikkunay Supreme, so I should know that there's 18 of them, and see whether or not in English, there are, you know, we had to choose like four English translations of the Bible and go through and see if they took the Tikkunay frame that is whether or not they took what the scribes said they changed it to or whether I know or not- there's one the, the ISR the Institute of Scripture Research that is popular they actually take if I remember right 
if you have a, a copy, it's the one that's the blue book that says the scriptures on it. If you, if anybody has it, just a side note here, um, the, the article that Tim put up or that Caleb put up that Tim did at, at SBL or ETF, I think it was, yeah, it was SBL. I think it was in Atlanta, maybe 2015. Um, on the the Tikkune Sofrim in Genesis, I think the the ISR version takes the Tikkune Sofrim as the original, right. which they miss the, the they're not trained to actually research it. And and I think if if they read your dad's paper, they would go, uh, we need to go back and okay, hang change on, that. Just, anyway, I, I, I want I want to make sure that I that I explained uh, Masoretic text. So basically, <laughs> the Masoretes don't come around until what the I think the earliest that we have is like. 6th, 7th century is when we start to see the schools of the Masoretes come around. A.D., that is. And so this is when you... And then they burned all of the um, all of the uh, scrolls and everything. Or not burned them, but they got rid of the scrolls uh, to try to uniform the Masoretic text. And they what did do you that, mean burn scrolls? They didn't burn the scrolls. They, but we don't have any scrolls before the 10th century. So they think oh. that they tried to get... Well, they, we have a scroll. We have Levit... Except for, uh, hang on, hang on just a second, yeah. except, for, except for the Dead Sea Scrolls. Of course, the, the uh, discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, obviously, the, and the Dead Sea Scrolls is not the Masoretic text. We have a new, there's a Leviticus scroll. Remember that they unwrote, they read that? That's like from, I don't know, 500 or so, I think. Yeah, but that's new, right? That's that's a newer discovery, right? Yeah. yeah. I guess I'm not tracking on, on what you're saying here. Anyway, be, my point is, is that before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest... Uh, the earliest scrolls that we have of the Tanakh of the of the Old Testament was 10th century, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, right. No, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. You, well, you couldn't have all the Bible on one scroll, right? All the Tanakh on one scroll, right? It, anyway, it, uh, that would be. Could you imagine? <laughs> like, like yeah. it'd be like a carpet. It'd be like right. this huge. Like. <laughs> um. Anyway, so okay. So the point, the the question is, the question that Andrew's asking here. It's a good question. And the question is, there's charge that the, uh, that the Masoretes that the Masoretes actually changed the text. People are saying that they changed the text to take out things that were being used against them right. from the Christian apologists. Right. And, uh, so, and so the people who are making this charge are saying, well, see, the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the scriptures, Mm-hmm. is a more valid translation. And therefore, we should be reading the Septuagint text instead of the Masoretic text. And the Masoretic text is what your, um, predominantly what your Bible is going to be based on. This is in, the charge. Most, yeah, unless you're Catholic. Like if you're, if you're reading a Catholic Bible, it's translated from the Septuagint most likely, or from actually not even the Septuagint, the probably from... From Jerome's Latin, yeah, yeah, the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation mm-hmm. of Jerome. Now, uh, I, I will, I will uh, throw this to you in just one second. Okay, um, and I actually have your notes that I can put up on the screen here. Um, but what I do want to say is that uh, I've been reading recently in a wonderful, fantastic book. I'm reading it's it's quite heady, heady but um, it's a collection of articles um, edited by uh, James Dunn, and the reference is in your. Show notes, of course, and basically uh, this this author, not James Dunn, a different author, he uh, talks all about the Septuagint. You have to know a little bit of Greek to fully understand what he's saying, but he talks. He has a whole uh, section 
on Jerome's charge against the Jews for basically what happens is that the Jews try, he charges the Jews as trying to retranslate the Septuagint a second time into Greek so that, uh, and trying to take out these, these portions in their new uh, Septuagint translation. He cites four uh, references in the, in the Tanakh where he says that they specifically change things as to make it so that the Christians wouldn't have a leg to stand on. And this, this is uh, Justin Martyr in the, in the second century, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, what this author uh, says, and I think that he, I'm, I mean, I don't know the argument uh, as well as this author does, obviously. He, he's very convincing, and uh, this is edited by James Dunn, so I have to assume that his scholarship is somewhat on point. Um, he says that there's actually no, basically Jerome had it, or not Jerome, I'm sorry, that uh, Justin Martyr pretty much had it wrong. And yeah. that uh, this is not what was going on with the Septuagint. Actually, they were following what seems to be the more accurate uh, text. Okay. Um, so do you want to move now to your notes? Sure. Well, uh, yeah. So this, these notes that I created are tied in maybe somewhat uh, off, our, off our topic. But basically, I thought this would be a good opportunity. The question is a good springboard for talking about, well, what do we do? You know, what if, what if there's a difference between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint? You know, do I just always take the Septuagint? And then some say, well, what, what if the Dead Sea Scrolls agree with the Septuagint over against the Masoretic? So is that like two to one now, and I need to go with the the you know, if there's a Hebrew text and a Greek text that are on one side and then the Masoretic text on the other, which do I choose? What's your thought? So Please. I just want to, uh, you know, uh, our our commenter, Andrew, he also mentioned that, you know, a lot of the time the Dead Sea Scrolls actually side with the Septuagint. This kind of, depe- yeah. th- th- this depends on what book you're in. So, for instance, the Isaiah Scroll predominantly, uh, I mean, it's it's very uniform to the Masoretic text, not to the Septuagint. Whereas there's other books that are going to, you know, lean more to the Septuagint. At least that's my understanding. Am I correct in that? Well, yeah, that's what my little sheet here is supposed to be an example of. Okay. Is diving into one of these things. So if, if, if you have it, hopefully you have it and Caleb can show it. I'm not seeing the, I'm not on the page right now to avoid that temptation. So I'm not seeing what's on the screen. Okay. Right I, now. I got it up for you. But basically, uh, this is, just a section from Exodus 1, verse 5, where there's a difference between the Hebrew, you know, our Masoretic text, and the Septuagint. Okay. Basically, that it boils down to this. How, uh, the Masoretic text says there were 70 souls. The, the Septuagint, or the Greek, says 75 souls. Okay. Okay, so there's a difference in a number. And so what this, I don't have the whole verse here, but we have, uh, so you, there are, uh, there's a little table here and there's five rows. Row one is the Masoretic text. Row two is, SP is the Samaritan Pentateuch. So that's the Samaritan Torah. And there's images of most of these down below that you can see, actual uh, uh, images. Then the next the rows three, four, and five are from Qumran, cave four, but they're different copies of Exodus. And they're just fragmentary, right? We don't have a whole book of, we don't have anywhere near a whole book of Exodus 
from the from Dead Sea Scrolls. But so four means cave four, Q means Qumran. So cave four at Qumran. This is one if you ever have the opportunity to visit Qumran, you can see cave four. Right, you don't even, you don't have to hike at all, and you can you can see cave four in the hillside up up in the hillside. And um, so there's and then the number after it is just the the assigned you know, arbitrary assignment that the scholars gave it as they were going through the fragments. Hang on just a sec, Rob. I'm going to, um, I'm going to open this up here and I'm going to make it so that people on this one can see my cursor. Okay. There we go. So, um, he's talking about right here. You have the cave number. This yeah, is ca- cave wh- number. Yeah, exactly. Where it is. And then if you can see my, um, and then 4Q and then this is the, not the scroll number 11. So 4Q 11 would be this scroll 4Q1 would be this scroll 4Q13. Okay, keep going, Rob. Exactly. And so these are just, uh, like I said, we don't have, these are, so here with these three, we know there were at least three different scrolls of Exodus in right. Cave 4. Sadly, just due to time and deterioration, we, we, just, we don't possess the three entire scrolls. What we have is fragments of each scroll. And the scrolls are discernible from each other by the, the, the material, by this, the scribal hand, and the fact that it's the, the differences that we'll see here. The, the reason I, I don't have them in sequential order, notice I have 4Q11, then I go to 1, and then I go to 13, is because of chronology. 4Q11 is, in, is written in Paleo-Hebrew script, and it is Hasmonean, so it's dated to the time of the Maccabees. So... Um, could be second century BC. Um, 4Q1 is also Hasmonean, dated to the Hasmonean. So this is pre, remember, Hasmonean is before Rome, before Rome comes in, in what, whatever, in the 60s BC. So this is before Herod, before Rome comes in, but after the original Hanukkah, after the Maccabean revolt. So that it, it's kind of a hundred year period there, between 160 and, and 60 BC. 4Q13, however, is Herodian. So it is uh, what we call during in the reign of, of King Herod, basically, uh, from King Herod's reign on to basically to the destruction of the temple. So it's a newer, newer text. Um, anyway, so I have images of 4Q1 and 4Q13 below. I couldn't get a, find a good image of the Paleo-Hebrew. I was bummed about that because I wanted to have it, but... Um, I was unable to, with our time constraints, find a good image. Okay, hang on. Just let, let me let me try to summarize real quick what I hear you. So so far, what I hear you saying. Okay, we have three different scrolls of Exodus one eight. Uh, what is this passage? I'm five. Sorry. One one verse five. five. One verse five. We have three different uh, scrolls from the Dead Sea Scroll. Obviously, we have the Masoretic text that we're putting it up against, and right. then we have the Septuagint that we're putting it up against as well. Okay, so right now. What we're doing is we're looking at five different versions of the exact same passage. And the yes, three, exactly. And right. the three different scrolls from Qumran all come from the same cave. In other words, yes, it's the they same. They were all stashed in, the, in that same cave. Three different scrolls, th- all in one cave. Yeah. Okay. And but, sadly we, but sadly, we just don't have as much as we'd like. Right. I, I, I want to answer just a question. I, I know people in the chat room have probably seen it because I, I answered, but um, Jessica asks, she says, uh, are there Jewish religious texts prior to the earliest Masoretic manuscripts that quote scripture? If so, 
do those quotes also agree with the Masoretic text oh, or are there differences? Question. And the answer is no. The, the closest that we have, obviously uh, scholars try to date the Mishnah as early as the third century, which I, uh, we, there's been papers written on this. We think that that could be uh, a, a little off. Um, anywhere from three to five, uh, the third to the fifth century is probably when the Mishnah was compiled and, and uh, put together. And then the uh, Talmud, uh, probably fifth to seventh century, maybe eighth century, depending. Um, and then, but we, that's just the date that they were compiled, uh, supposedly compiled. We don't actually have a manuscript of the Mishnah or the Talmud or any other uh, rabbinic text like that until the 1200s, uh, 11th, uh, no, I'm sorry, 11, 1100s. Um, and that's when we get both. We get the Mishnah and the Talmud because it's actually a, uh, a codex of the Talmud itself and the Mishnah's inside the Talmud. So we see this whole compilation. So essentially, we don't have any um, any of, of the uh, rabbinic texts until much later. Okay, so back to our paper now. Decipher so, now what you're trying to so point So the issue here is, well, what do we do? You know, the Masoretic text says 70 souls came from came to Egypt, right? Because this is the beginning of the book of Exodus, right? What how, What's at the beginning of Exodus? Well, we just heard Genesis just ends with Joseph dying, and they take him. Uh, well, no, they don't. They, they put him in a coffin, basically. They put him in a chest under the oath that they're going to take him and bury him in the, in the promised land. Then Exodus comes, and it says these are the, the names, right? Shemot. These right. are the names. Uh, and it goes through the names of the sons of, of Jacob to say that they all came down to Egypt under Joseph. And uh, and then it says in all. Now it doesn't list all the names there; it just lists the tribal names. But then it says all in all there were seventy souls. Well, if you look at the Greek Septuagint that we have, it says there all in all there were seventy five souls. Okay, so what do you do? So there. So, okay, well, is it a, should I care? Should I say oh it was a mistake? Well, we actually can look at that question, and there's a, a proper method of what we can do, and that's what I've tried to do with the outline here today, and we can uh, talk about it. Um, basically, we look at our, what are our text witnesses? You know, what are the different witnesses? And the ones I have here are all in Hebrew. I didn't put the, if you scroll down a little bit, you'll see the Septuagint uh, uh, is given below. But, um, hang on just a sec. Let me, uh, so here, right here, as you can see, LX, for those looking on the screen, right here, the LXX is right here, but Joseph was in Egypt, so all the souls from Jacob were five and 70, and he died. Right. So notice the Septuagint starts with Joseph was in Egypt. Right. Now, if you go up, well, I don't have, yeah, well, look at the Masoretic, now the, the row one in our table. The Masoretic text says all the, the, the souls that came out of Jacob were 70 souls. Joseph was in Egypt, and he died. So not only is the number different, the Septuagint takes this verse, Joseph was in Egypt, and puts it, moves it back. Then where the Masoretic text, and, and because of space, I didn't provide the whole thing here. You'd have to look up in your Bible, but you, you can compare what I have there for the Septuagint, what you find in the Bible. Um, basically, the Masoretic tradition has the sentence, Joseph was in Egypt after the number 70. 70, right. Yeah. 
uh, but uh, in uh, the Septuagint, it bumps it up. Now, one thing to look at, one of our text um, uh, textual witnesses is the Samaritan Pentateuch. Now, granted, I think our oldest one we have is, is written in the 12th century, Common Era. Uh, and I, there's an image of it below. But it is, in this verse, not entirely, but in this verse, the Samaritan Pentateuch is precisely in agreement with the Masoretic text. Now, unless you, you know, you can find a little uh, uh, Samaritan alphabet, if you just Google Samaritan alphabet key or something, you can find it, and you can, because uh, the script is very, very different. But, so it's not as easy to read as, as the Hebrew, if you're familiar. But for this point, the Samaritan and the Masoretic are in total agreement. Now, let's let's look at the at the Qumran find. So the, the uh, number 11, 4Q11, all we have is this here. It breaks, it, it, we don't have anything before the word nefesh. It just says nefesh. By Yosef Hayab b'mitz, and then it breaks off. So I, I supplied the rhyme there. There's nowhere, no other place in the scripture where this could be. This is, I mean, this is the only place right. in the Bible where you're going to see this. So we don't know, with 4Q11, we don't know what the number was. We don't know if 4Q11 had 70 or 75. Okay. But, but this string of characters, the nefesh v'yosephayah b'mitz, that is precisely the same exact string of, of letters that we have in the Masoretic text and then in the Samaritan text. Right. So it's uniform. So the top three seem to be uniform. Yeah. That's what, that's why I put, and it's, and it's, remember, this is a paleo, written in Paleo Hebrew and right. it's dated to the Hasmonean era. Which is so, when? Which is when? For Hasmonean, our... that's the, under the Maccabean kings. So okay. remember, that's after, after the, the, the Maccabean revolt. So after Hanukkah, right? After the, the first, you know, the original origin of Hanukkah, and before Rome comes into the land. Right. So between 160s B.C. and 60s B.C., somewhere in there. Um, now let's look at 4Q1, also from the Hasmonean period, but it's in a square script. So it looks more like, and you can see the image of this if you scroll below. Okay, hang on just a sec. Uh, the chat room is saying uh, that the video is quite grainy for the document you're showing. By the way, the actual document is e easier to read. Well, there you okay, go. Okay, thanks for the yeah. Sorry for that weird uh, technology here. Um, okay, go four Q one. Now four Q one. What we do have is just this vechamesh nefesh vayosef. And so five, all so, we have yeah. is and five souls and Joseph. Da, da, da. So the only place this could be in all of Scripture. There's no other place than uh, than Exodus one verse five. But the problem is this word chamesh uh, five. Right. So we know we know. That 4Q1 must, the word before Vechamesh must have been... 70. The, yeah, 70. Right. 70 and 5. Okay. Right? Now, 4Q13, this one you can see below too. Chamesh Veshivim, it, it has uh, 5 and 70 nefesh. And he died. And he died. So what's missing in 4Q13 is, and Joseph was in Mitzrayim. Right. So in other words, the MT, rows 1 through 3, MT, SP, and 4Q11, after the word nefesh, have, and Joseph was in Egypt. 4Q13 doesn't have that. It goes right to, and he died, which is the verse which we would call 
uh, Exodus 1, verse 3. It goes right to Exodus 1, verse 3. And notice, so here's some things. If all we had was 4Q1 and 4Q13, we'd say, well, even they are different because one says 5 and 70 and the other probably says 70 and 5, right? Right. One goes, after Nefesh, it goes to, to presumably, and Joseph was still in Egypt, whereas 4Q13 doesn't say Yosef right after. So there in, the one core point here is that there's no uniform Qumran, Hebrew. We have three. In other words, they don't three they scrolls don't, of Exodus. They don't and have they a standard. Don't agree with each yeah, other. Yeah, they don't have a standard scroll that they're copying off. Of. That's the point. Four Q eleven. If we had more of it, we might be able to to show. And that's something I haven't. I haven't looked at all through all of four Q eleven to see. But at least in this place, four Q eleven does. Uh, it's a very early text, and it matches the Masoretic text, and the Samaritan Pentateuch. And we know the Samaritan Pentateuch is late, right? It's our earliest copy is 12th century. Right. But it represents a pretty solid text tradition. They have their own uh, way of writing, very uh, uniform way of writing the text. And there's very there's places where there's big differences in the Samaritan Pentateuch um, than, than we see in the Masoretic text. So they, they preserved it uh, tradition of the mo, uh, of the Pentateuch um, and in this case it's it's there's no disagreement with the Masoretic text so uh, and Rob if for those who do have the document and uh, you know if you need it you can there are ways to get it um, but if you do have the document Rob has been kind enough to supply images of each one of these for those who do read Hebrew um, and uh, yeah and all those images there's it's just dead sea scrolls dot org dot ill it's right. a it's a great website. I've supplied the links for those, so you can go and you can zoom in. The the links I or the pictures I have here are from the infrared uh, imaging. So that's not the original color. The original color, the scrolls don't have as nice of a contrast because it's the dark brown with the blacking. Right, right. So you can see those images as well, like just just full natural color images that are also high res, but. I like looking at, they supply both. So you can look at the infrared images, and this is all free. You have to use their browsing software. You, right. can't, down, you can't really download these. So what I do is I pull an image, I cut a page, a, an image out from the screen. Okay, hang on just a sec. And this is actually where I was going. Thank you, Jessica, because she, she basically put, she asked the question that I wanted to answer. And uh, basically what we need to do at this point is a summary and uh, a conclusion of what we're trying to say. Jessica says, so what does the layman to do with this information? Why are these discrepancies significant or not significant? And basically, and I'll, I'll tell you what I hear you saying, and I'll tell you what I believe I've tried to put forward, and then I want you to come behind and, and sum it all up, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll call it a day. Um, basically, what I... What I'm trying to say here, and what I think Rob is trying to say is, you can't say that, that Qumran specifically um, takes after the Septuagint tradition, or that it favors the Septuagint. There's no standardized text that, this, that the Dead Sea Scrolls follow after. Uh, you know, like I said earlier, the Isaiah Scroll uh, is almost uniform with the Masoretic text. Um, and then in later uh, church fathers' discussions and whatnot, they do put this charge forward, that the Masoretes uh, were, you know, trying to change the Septuagint itself. The point is, is that textual criticism as a whole, 
is what we need to look to. And this is one reason, and this goes back to our question in our show notes and on our Facebook page about what translation do you use? Um, my father has said many times that he believes that you should never pick up a Bible as a main tool that has been translated by one person. And the reason why is because when you have something like the ESV or the NASB or even, even the uh, New King James Version or something like this, you have whole teams of people who have dedicated their lives to man, uh, studying manuscripts, studying textual variants, studying these things. They've put all of their knowledge together. So one person will say, I think it's like this. And the other person will say, no, that's wrong. Blah, you know, And it takes them years and years and years to create these translations. Um, and what this does is it produces translations that are uh, very involved in textual criticism to get back to what is believed to be, you know, all of these kind of things are weighed together to say, what do we think the original is? What do we think was, you know, what's the original tradition? And this is why it's important to have these huge committees with good scholars on them who, who have dedicated their lives to these things. When you have somebody who comes along who, um, you know, has taught themselves Hebrew or Greek, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, right? Tyndale did that. Tyndale taught himself um, Hebrew and uh, he produced an amazing translation, Right now, granted, but, there was, but he was going into he was a pioneer he didn't have anybody, any translations to really. Well, not only that, but Tyndale, to, to I mean, if we read the stories of Wycliffe and Wycliffe and, and Tyndale and even Luther, these guys were not just sitting in a room by themselves. They were out. They were scavenging for, you know, uh, different translations in different languages. They were talking to other scholars. They were, you know, there was a lot of care that went into these things as opposed to some guy sitting behind his computer. Uh, you know, trying to make a translation. And there are good, you know, there are good people who have tried to do that. And, um, you know, but my point in all of this is to say, we can trust our Bibles and we can trust, uh, you know, it, this is a, a whole field in and of itself. Textual criticism is a whole field in and of itself. If it's something that interests you, then by all means, I think, um, you know, I think that it's something that you that is worthy of study. But uh, there are really good scholars who have done it. Rob, what do you think? I think that we have to recognize that, like you said, that the scriptures as a whole, we absolutely can trust. And right. the, like Jessica mentioned, the layperson, you can trust, use, use a couple Bibles, compare them, like the NASB, ESV. I mean, use the New King James if you want. The, the thing is, we're gonna, you're going to get to areas in your study where... Because each translation is like upholding a world that says this is what the Bible says. Right. right? That's what a translation. When you open a, a translation of Bible, said this is what the Bible says, and you're going to have another translation, and it's going to say almost the same thing, but there's going to be a couple places where there might be noise, right? And those we're never going to be without those places, those points where there's just like we see here. Oh, the Masoretic text says seventy, Septuagint says seventy-five. What do we do? Crisis? Well, um, no, not a crisis. Not a crisis. And that's actually, that's actually Jeremy's point in the chat room. He says, I think uh, it shows that there are discrepancies, but the vast majority of them are not theologically significant. We can almost certainly have more theological significant, uh, theologically significant differences in the English translations than between the LXX, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Masoretic text. I'm sorry, keep going. So it's uh, it's all good, right? It's all good. There are challenge. What what 
back to the question about what what does this mean for the layperson? The layperson, uh, as we all do, needs to adopt a um, an attitude that that we're willing to have our presuppositions challenged, right? And learn to think in new ways. Back to the renewing of the mind, right? If I'm if I was raised King James only, for example, and I've had and I just let's say I believe that and I've even taught it because I just believed it true. There's going to be a whole bunch of presuppositions that I've built in to my the way I look at the world and the way I think about things that if I was, let's say, looking at this handout today, I'd be like, wait a minute. It's this is just too this is crazy. I just need to go back to the simple King James. OK, that's not the re- proper response. The proper response is like, well, I need to understand that I'm entering in when I when I desire to ask a, a really pointed question about the scriptures. We're not talking about general questions. We're talking about like, well, is it 70 or 75 in Exodus 1-5? Okay, let's say that's my question. I have to recognize that I'm going to enter, I'm opening myself up by asking that question into this 2,000-year-old conversation right because it seems that probably at Qumran itself I I would suggest that 4Q11 probably just had 70 I don't know for a fact but it's my suspicion Um, but anyway we know that this conversation was had in in Jewish world and um Ultimately, you know, the reason for this one has to do with whether you count the sons of Joseph born in Egypt or not. And so there are other verses from Genesis that list that you can also compare the Septuagint against the Masoretic. And so it's the idea then came to be an editing decision about where to, you know, we need to just have it one way and and move on. And people who study the whole scripture will understand, well, Joseph still being in Egypt, does that mean his kids, if they're born in Egypt, are they counted part of the 75 or not? So, um, but these kinds of questions came up as these manuscripts were being written, and sometimes they were affected. But it's not, it's not for a, uh, like a theological reason, right. always. Um, so it's difficult, but here's the thing. The layman needs to understand that the Bible has difficult time. There's difficult things with the Bible, right? right. And, and it's not always um, you buy the Bible and now you have the Bible and, and you can just read it and you have access to all knowledge pertaining to God, you know, because uh, the book itself is a product, right? That book itself is a, a product with a, a, a million decisions that were made by men and women to create that product. And, and, I'm thankful that we live in a time and, and place where we have a, basically a, the free market economy where we can have multiple translations, different institutions promoting uh, their theology and trying to argue why the translations would, would fit theirs versus the others, you know, and to have the, the Internet with the exchange of more or less free exchange of ideas. This is very amazing the time that we live in now, that we have access to these kind of things. The fact that we can see images from the Leningrad Codex, right. from the Samaritan Pentateuch, to three 
you know, or two different scrolls from Qumran. 20 years ago, someone, it, it would have cost you right. thousands and thousands of dollars to, to compile this two-page thing. It would have cost you thousands of dollars. Why? Because, A, you'd have to have, find someone who knew what, how to, where to look, and they would have to travel to, where is it, you know, Cambridge University. They would have to find someone that would give them permission to go to Israel and go in and photograph fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but they might not even have organized these particular fragments yet. So they're not even going to give you access. So the point is we're talking on this two pages here is thousands of dollars get in yesterday's currency. By the but way, here we can just go boom, boom, boom. I took me, I don't know, a couple hours. I tweaked with it. I by, by the, to... But at the same time, Rob is talking about going online and finding these. If you have a Corden's Bible software, all of these are included uh, in certain modules. You can just have them right at your fingertips and on your phone if you want as well. Okay, I hope that this, uh, that this has uh, benefited you. Whether or not you speak any uh, Hebrew, any Greek, any whatever, um, or you're, you consider yourself a total layman and don't even understand some of the phrases that we were using, I hope that you can gain something from this because I, I hope that this conversation is, uh, shed some light a little bit, at least on your, uh, on your Bible. Go to our Facebook page, weigh in on the conversation, what translation do you use and why, and uh, why do you like it? Um, okay, so next time we're going to come back and we're going to talk about something, who knows what, uh, but we want you to be a part of that too. And so you can be a part of that by calling our comment line, 253-465-3205. You can also uh, uh, shoot us an email, chag at torresource.com. It's chag at torresource.com. A big, huge thanks to our associate producers and our executive producers. We love you guys so much and we appreciate all of our monthly supporters. We couldn't do it without you. But we hope that this conversation is on one thing. What is it? Glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. Why? Because Messiah matters. <laughs>